Welcome to life, bringing you insight and experiences into love, relationships, and fertility with a focus on enjoying life and moving forward. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking about the evolution of fertility with Dr. Sergio Erringer. Welcome to life, love, insight, fertility, experiences. Today I'm here with Dr. Sergio Erringer, reproductive endocrinologist at the Shear Institute of Fertility in Manhattan. Dr. Erringer has over 30 years of experience in the field. He's held the position of professor and vice chair of the Department of OBGYN at Eastern Virginia Medical School and worked at the Jones Institute for Reproductive Medicine. For those of you not familiar with the name, it's the first IVF clinic in America. Welcome, Dr. Erringer. Well, thank you very much, Lori, for the opportunity. I, I think that I've been, I've been lucky to witness major growth in the ability that we have to treat infertility. And this, this is based on work in the last 30, 35 years, where the development of the assisted reproductive technologies has been dramatic. I arrived at the Jones Institute in Norfolk, Virginia, who established itself as the first IVF clinic in the U.S., that had to have been amazing at that time with everything going on. It was it, it was the beginning of a new world and there was a lot of um, opposition against a new technology that had not been proven. I went there in 1986. The developments of the first birth happened in 1981. Right, that was when they had the first, what they called, test tube baby. First test tube baby in the U.S. There had been a first in the world in Cambridge in 1979, and what happened was at uh, the Jones Institute, the real pioneers, my mentors, were people that thought that the stimulation of the ovarian cycle was very important, not to rely on the natural cycle where you get one egg right. to fertilize, but rather use hormones. Uh-huh. And they pioneered that, and those hormones are still used today, wow. 35 years later, and they achieved the first birth. And from then on, everything was a boom. Can you imagine what it must have been like for those first couples to come into your center with everything going on? The first couples were brave couples. Incredibly brave. That, uh, you know, they they were kind of desperate in terms of pregnancy. Yes. And I remember very well the first one was from Boston. Uh huh. And it was a success. And at delivery, that happened in Norfolk, Virginia, um, everybody was a little bit worried what are we going to uh, have here (laughs) and the baby was beautiful and fine her name uh, is uh, elizabeth carr how fabulous is that fabulous fabulous so does she speak about it at all she speaks about it a lot and she's very well spoken Mm -hmm. and and she's a, a a great lady and 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 has represented the art world the assistive reproductive technology world very well so she was the first of, in, in the world, we estimate around over 6 million babies born from in vitro fertilization. My goodness, that is huge. In the U.S., that represents around 1.5% of births. Mm-hmm. In Nordic European countries where there's more social medicine and more affordable IVF, right. it can represent up to 4% of births. Wow. So IVF started slow and grow and grows and will keep growing because the technologies have evolved and improved so that success rates are dramatically improved now. 
I would imagine in the 80s, right, everybody was protesting and, and having all kinds of strong feelings about mm -hmm. what was going on in the clinic. Yep. The religious people were probably having, you know, demonstrations about it. To actually be brave enough to even work in the clinic, I think mm -hmm. is significant. Yep. To then what you see today, the steps along the way are profound. And I think about the 80s, and it was a while ago, but it really wasn't that long, ago, long ago to <laughs> see the evolution in this medical field yep. when you don't see evolutions like this in other medical fields. I, I, I really don't think so. I, I really don't think so. And it, it has been done with a tremendous emphasis on the moral and ethical aspects of the new developments. Mm -hmm. um, and th that's thanks to those, those pioneers. Um, so that now IVF is standard, absolutely standard therapy in infertility, and it will continue to grow and improve. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it is standard therapy today, but there's so much associated with it, mm -hmm. and there's still so much confusion. When, when people come to me to talk about it, or I run a support group, there's still confusion about the treatments and about which path to take, and what I've experienced is that with the technology and with the changes through the years, it raises more and more questions for the person going through the treatment. Right, and, and because there's a lot of variety even within the IVF world. I think every doctor in every clinic has their own... Different approach. A different approach, yes. yes. I mean, there's, there's certain standards, but we, we still call it a little bit of an art, uh -huh. as an art. It <laughs> is an art. And science. So I think that what one of the major things we've learned from the 80s is, is that I in those days, infertility was totally a female problem. Yes. Today, we know that male infertility probably can account to half of the cases of infertility. Do you think half? Oh, yes. 40% and combined with female, 60%. So the growth of IVF has helped women with all types of diagnosis from tubal disease, endometriosis, ovulation to be successful. Plus now, because we know how to test the man much better, yeah. allow uh, men with very low sperm counts and other problems to get pregnant through IVF. So that has been a major development. It is a major development. I look at the <coughs> statistics and usually um, I've seen a third, like a third mm -hmm. is the male, a third is the female, and a third is unexplained. So 40 is a big difference it's to it jump. It, it is. I think that in unexplained, which is a diagnosis that couples really don't like because you cannot find a reason why of things course. are not happening. Yeah. Um, it's probably around, I, I would say, 15% of the times that okay. we cannot really have a find a cause for the problem. So most of the times we find a female or a male issue that in, in the end IVF will kind of bypass many of the problems. It's not that IVF cures diseases in reality, right? but it allows you know, basically sperm and egg to get together. I would add that in, in the historical evolution um, after the first years, the improvement in the knowledge about the, the male counterpart grew and grew, and therefore more couples could be successful. In around 1993, a, a major event happened uh, scientifically, which was the development of a technique to micro-inject sperm into the eggs, as opposed to... That's when it happened. That's when it happened, 1993 in Belgium, Belgium, uh, because IVF me meant 
incubating sperm and egg together in a tube. And then the sperm would have to fertilize. That development of a micro injection technique of one sperm into the egg really changed the game. Because now any man with any, any number of sperm can be treated. And that was a magnificent thing that happened. It's fabulous. It really is. Because now when somebody comes into my office and they say that the sperm count is low or the sperm is um, slow, mm -hmm. you kind of have a little self-assurance when talking to them that they'll be able to conceive. Whereas years ago, I think that would be a very hard statement to make. Absolutely. What I find is that men don't talk about fertility mm -hmm. the way women do. But I think they go through the same thing. Th they do, absolutely. When you treat the men, do they do they express any kind of concerns or um, remorse or feeling sad or guilty about the situation? I I, I think men don't express themselves as women many <laughs> times. <laughs> no, I they don't. They, I think they all do, and um, but eventually, once they they learn, they are totally involved. Mm -hmm. Totally involved. So with all of these advances in the technology, it on one hand sounds so simple, but just to get there had to be huge. The science and the money and the energy and kind of the drive of the research. Yes, uh, no doubt. Re research has been the foundation for all this. Um, research that usually has started in, in, in laboratory animals and then is translated into clinical use. Mm -hmm the freezing of the egg that now is done very successfully thank you to a new technology of freezing mm -hmm. we have frozen sperm and embryos for decades but eggs now has become so important that there is a lot of egg freezing happening and the, the, the first indication for egg freezing that I think uh, occurred was related to women who are Unfortunately, going to lose ovarian function because, for mm -hmm. example, a history of uh, a development of a diagnosis of breast cancer or other right. cancers. Yes. And now oncology treatments are wonderful in that the survival rates are very high. They are. So those women can quickly, in two weeks, mm -hmm. a two-week period, stimulate freeze eggs. Right. That can be used five years later or eight years later or ten years later. Mm -hmm. Undergo their treatment. Mm-hmm and be healthy again. Right, and are they carrying their embryo, or are they using surrogates? Oh, no, no, they, are, they absolutely can get pregnant yeah. themselves and carry their pregnancy. Right, which is wonderful. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, and, and they could also, if they're not able to after the treatment or after the condition, they are able to use a surrogate as well. Uh, absolutely, no, no doubt. And this evolved also into now um, more and more women that are career-oriented and working and trying to, you know, kind of delaying pregnancies and freezing eggs is a way to maintain that uh, potential. So, so fertility preservation is becoming a major issue. All this is the evolution of IVF. I have several patients that have used donor eggs, more than several, and I run a mm -hmm. support group on it. And a lot of the women there look at these women who are, you know, 45 plus having children and they're not saying that it's a donor egg, or they're not really explaining things. And I was so happy when Tamara Hall, who's now got a talk show, came out and said that she froze her eggs. Mm -hmm. Because it gives people an understanding that you could be a little bit older, but to keep it in the back of your mind, 
that once you hit a certain age, you might want to consider doing that if you want a biological child. Absolutely. If the child doesn't have to be biologically tied to you, you can wait a little bit longer with the donor egg, possibly donor sperm, possibly surrogacy, and adoption, which is always an option. all All available options. Right. So people will always have a family, but the work that you've done has really focused on allowing a person to have a biological connection to the child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I, I mentioned before that we have witnessed you know, tremendous improvement in success rates. In the 80s, we had a success that we was fabulous, and it was around a 20% pregnancy rate per right. 100 transfers. Uh-huh. Today, overall, is around 30-40% pregnancy rate per R- transfer. And is that regardless of the age or regardless that's of... That's not regardless. That's very much age-dependent. Uh-huh. Age of the woman, in reality, is the number one determinant of success. So, it of course, it drops with you know late 30s and 40s. Yeah. And I'm so glad you said that, the late 30s and the 40s, because everybody keeps focusing on magic numbers. Yeah. And then they get labeled as an older mother or a geriatric pregnancy. And it puts a different kind of emphasis and focus on yeah. the treatment. On the treatment, yeah. And an, 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 an additional development, which I think uh, is also revolutionizing the field, is the possibility to diagnose chromosomal and genetic issues of the embryo. That's huge. Before you transfer. Yeah. So that's what's called pre-implantation genetic and chromosomal screening of embryos. Right now, I've recently heard like a mixed opinion about that, mm. and I find that some patients have mixed feelings about it. I, I think that what is important to mention is that the technology today is as good probably as it is going to get and is excellent. So the accuracy of the diagnosis, which a few years ago, they w- mm. they w- it was good, but there were issues. I think that more and more those issues are going to be disappearing. Really? So that the, the, the sensitivity and specificity of these assays is tremendous. Mm-hmm. And what is I- even f- more important is that when you are able to diagnose and confirm that this embryo that I'm going to transfer is chromosomally normal, across the board, we get very high pregnancy rates that are in the 50 or 60 When you do the testing. When you do the testing. So now if you are a 40-year-older... Y- that uh, you have a you know, low chance with a standard IVF. Right. But now you have embryos and you're able to find one that is chromosomally normal and you transfer that embryo, your pregnancy rate is very high. That's now excellent. you selected the embryo that can work. That's excellent. That really is. And it also applies to genetic diseases. Some couples that are unfortunate that they carry genes. Yes. And the combination of genes can result in a very severe entity later on, disease, what we call single mutation diseases, we can diagnose those in the embryo and then transfer normal embryos, not affected embryos. Right, and understand what you're doing. That's so significant for so many couples because I see people who carry the embryo for many, many months, six months, seven months even, and then they wind up losing it or there's no heartbeat. You know, the more information you have, the better. The better. You know, to play devil's advocate on it, I have some people say that they would rather just conceive and then just see what happens. And I suppose you have to respect both points of view. You have to respect absolutely that decision. I mean, this is, in the end, 
the technology is there, the couple will decide, I want to do it or I'm going to just see what happens. I find that people have been talking about the mosaic technique mm-hmm. recently, and many women who have to go the donor road, if their doctors don't think the mosaic is going to work for them and they don't try it, there's some remorse involved with that. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the, you know, e- each advancement has a little issue on the side. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like everything in life. And everything <laughs> in life. This mosaicism is, is, is an issue. It's, it's, it's hard to resolve. I think that the technologically it will get resolved. Uh-huh. And then if I, I, there have been publications that transferring mosaic embryos has given healthy babies. Right. Uh, but some not. So you are, the couple needs to understand that there is a risk. Yeah. And, and of course, the decision is the patient's decision. It's ultimately their decision. Yes. I used to believe in trying for multiple births. And now the field has, it seems to have changed to a Absolutely single life. Absolutely reversed. Absolutely yeah. reversed. Yeah. Do you know why that happened? In the beginning, we were transferring embryos not knowing chromosomal content or composition of the embryos. And the success rates were lower, so we were transferring two or three embryos. Right. And in the early days, I don't want to tell you, three or four embryos. Uh-huh. So that's why you had triplets. occasional triplets and very rare quadruplets and lots of twins because you were transferring many embryos. And that's something obstetricians don't like, and with reason that those multiple pregnancies are associated with very high complication rates. Little by little, and it's very important that I mention this, the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technologies, which is a congregation of all the reproductive endocrinologists in the country, has its own guidelines and has pushed the, mm. the, the field to decrease the number of embryos transferred. And if there were three embryos transferred in the 80s and two in the 90s, today is 1.5 embryos. So that the reduction in the multiple gestations that carry tremendous morbidity plus yeah. the increase of health cost yeah is is really really decreasing and that's that's something that the field has to be proud of that's interesting it's an interesting perception yeah. of it it really is because i have some people who are in their 40s who wouldn't mind having twins yeah but this, this is a daily discussion to me why i want twins i said fine if you want twins but you know there is an increased obstetrical risk yeah more prematurity and and to the mother. Yeah. And to the mother carrying. Yeah. So very often when they have a single birth, you don't see quite as much of the gestational diabetes or the high blood pressure Correct. or any of those conditions where you may have to have the uh, fetus be delivered early. Yeah. Prema- prematurity. Prematurity is, is very frequent in the multiple gestations. That can be a big problem. When you work with women and when you work with couples and probably couples who are um, all different backgrounds and affiliations, what happens? You start to see them, and then once they get pregnant, do you stop seeing them at your center and they go to a regular OB? Typically for us, yes. That's the way we we do. So we help with pregnancy. We confirm the first pregnancy tests, and then we do the ultrasound. We see the heartbeat. At what week do you do that? This typically seven weeks. Mm -hmm. And probably we see the patient eight weeks and then they go back to their obstetrician for the care. So when you do that kind of handoff, do you recommend the doctors or do the patients find their own? Patients really find their own. They do? They do. Patients really find their own. 
So we, we give the, 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 the couple total independence on who is going to be the obstetrician. Right, and they probably yeah. very well might go back to the obstetrician they went to before. Most of the times. Yeah. Do you think that the handoff of information has changed from the reproductive endocrinologist to the obstetrician at this point in time? I think there is there is good relationship, uh, and, uh, and it's <laughs> it's getting better. I remember uh, in some time ago I was invited to uh, give a talk in OB at Duke, and the obstetricians were not happy with the reproductive endocrinologists. You know, they weren't. You know, success rates were high, but multiple gestations were high. Right. And nowadays, you know. I think that there is a major control of that issue, and, and I think obstetricians appreciate that too. Yeah, I have a few people who have told me that the obstetrician doesn't really necessarily ask how the child was conceived at times, and I think that's an important part of the history. I, it, it definitely is. No, no doubt about whether it's a donor egg or an you know, older egg. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, I think it's important that communication is open. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's very important. That's why I'm, I had raised it. Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen now? There's so many different avenues. You can confidently say, or I can relatively confidently say, that most people will probably have a family. I, I, you say, I think you said it right. Most, most people. This is never going to be 100%. I yeah. think that I even now that we can transfer what we think is the most beautifully morphologically beautiful embryo mm -hmm. and is in addition to that chromosomally normal and we don't get a hundred percent pregnancy rate right so w what are the other factors that we are going to find i think we may, we may find some other embryonic issues that are not chromosomal mm -hmm. that we don't know about and the other part of the equation is the endometrium, the lining of the uterus. Right. That, that, that a lot of research is going on on that, but I think that that will bring other players mm -hmm. that hopefully can be treated. Yeah. Because, this, because they, these are uterine issues, not embryo issues. So I think that that's where, you know, most of the new research and advancements, and I hope, happen. Yeah, I hope so, too. Yeah. It, and in terms of seeing the change in the people who have been coming to you because initially you had this incredibly brave couple coming to you so that this baby could be born and today when people come to you do you see a difference in in how they're presenting there, there is a difference no doubt and there is also many times a, a tremendous amount of knowledge on this part of the couple which of course helps the doctor uh -huh. and this is thanks to you know Information, <coughs> the world of information we live in today that everybody Googles every term. I'm glad you said it helps the doctor because some people don't think it helps. So. I, th I think it helps. I think it helps. You know, the more informed the patient, the more you can discuss in depth, I think, right. what is happening. I think it's a double-edged sword when I'm working with people. <laughs> when they start Googling, I'm like, don't Google so much, call yeah, your doctor. Yeah, don't Google so much. That's true. That's true, too. Yeah, yeah but yeah. It, the information is, it's, it's great that, that you feel that way. Yeah, it, yeah. it really is. And that way you could really have a conversation, which mm. it seems to me like that's something that you you do and you enjoy doing and connecting with the patients. So at least that's what's coming across to me while yeah. we're chatting right Absol now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So if there were some changes on the horizon or there was something that you would like to be able to communicate 
regarding what you've experienced and what you hope to see? Would there be anything significant or special you'd like to share? I think that what, what is important to transmit to patients trying to get pregnant is that if you take all the population of infertile couples, between, of course, IVF is kind of the latest but also more efficient treatment, but not everybody needs IVF. Yes. So there are pre-IVF steps, and many patients get pregnant with that. So the, the number of patients that can be helped, really, is probably two-thirds of couples that enter a clinic may or will achieve a pregnancy. Wow. So that's a big number. That is a big number. Yeah. So I think people have to be optimistic. Yeah, I would yeah. think so also. Yeah. The steps in the process get confusing. And I think with the evolution, the more steps and the more process, process you know, processes that go on, the more confusing it becomes mm-hmm. and overwhelming it becomes to people. What I've noticed is that even though IVF is something that's in the news a lot and spoken about a lot and surrogacy is, donor egg not so much, people still feel isolated and alone through this journey. So it'll be nice for people not to feel quite as alone, and that's part of the reason why I've started doing this podcast, is so people have information, and they don't feel isolated, they don't feel alone while they're going through it. And you, you should be thanked for doing this. Well, really. no, I, I, th- I think you should, mm-hmm. and people who come on. Yeah. We've had people talk about surrogacy. Um, surrogacy has become popular with some of the stars and some of the celebrities, mm-hmm. but there's profound difference between people who do it for to fit into their work schedule versus right. people who are doing it because they just can't real need yeah. yeah and it doesn't take away from either wanting to be a parent mm-hmm. and either wanting to have that child mm-hmm. but one of the people that we had come on said that they evaluate really based on the background of the person and if it's just because they don't have the time they won't you know, have that person in their in their center, but if it's because they have need, they will. Oh yeah. And so that's an interesting concept. The donor egg evolution in the field, I find, still is very secretive versus private. I'd like to see people be able to become more comfortable, because the children that are born through donor egg and through surrogacy have different impressions of life than do those through adoption. And um, I'm hoping to have some of those children on to talk about That's it. That's great. And the same applies to donor sperm. But yeah. the donor sperm has, is much older in terms of us using that technology. It was easy. Well, it's interesting you say that because right now I'm in the process of trying to have a few men come on to talk about the process of donor sperm. Mm-hmm. Hard to identify the gentleman that might want to come on. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping. I'm Good. hoping they will. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you for all the work you've done. Thank you for all the babies you've made possible in this world. Yeah, we are very welcome. And I'm very happy that I was here, really. Thank oh, you very much. Well, thank you. Yeah. Is there s- a way that people can get a hold of you? Yeah, the Share, Fer- is the Share Fertility Institute is, is um, here in Manhattan. It's, it's a well-known center. Uh, we have a, s- a website, Share, uh-huh. yes. Share Fertility New York, um, and all the phone numbers and accesses are there. That's great. I have a couple of patients who go there. Yeah. And um, if anybody has any questions or would like any additional information, please feel free to contact me at laurimance.net. 